A group of friends were playing touch football. At one point, the person in whose backyard the game was being played was accused of committing a foul. He responded, you can't accuse me of doing something wrong, and do you know why? Because this is my football, that's why. Sometimes we make up our own rules and make everyone play along. In the book of Job, some of Job's friends do this regarding God and suffering. Today on Groundwork, we'll look at how and why they did this. Stay tuned. From Words of Hope and Reframe Media, this is Groundwork, where we dig into scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Dave, this is now program number three in our five-part series on the book of Job. In the first program, we, of course, saw how Job's life got upended into a series of terrible tragedies that left him destitute. But we also saw that Job refused to give up on God, uh, even though Job you know, willingly admitted he was miserable. He even wished he had never been born, but he still didn't want to give up on God. Right. So he goes on trusting God. He maintains his integrity. That's a great phrase from the book of Job. The fact that his faith is real. And despite what's happened to him, he's not going to, as his wife urges him, curse God or dismiss God. And the friends come to comfort him, so-called uh, comforters, so-called friends. friends, yeah. Right. And we've listened to what they've said. And basically, their argument is pretty simple. God blesses those who are good. God punishes those who are evil. It seems like God is punishing you. Therefore, you must be evil, or at least you've done something evil. So, Job, you better figure out what it is, repent of it, and try to get back in good with God. Right. But Job didn't buy it. I mean, he he doesn't claim uh, anywhere that he is completely without sin. But to lose your your livelihood, your 10 children, uh, your health, everything, Job is really quite convinced he whatever sins he may be guilty of in life it, it didn't warrant this if, if if this is a punishment as the friends are suggesting so job doesn't buy what particularly the first three friends were selling to him he just didn't buy it and the friends will go on to and, and a fourth friend who shows up named uh, elihu um uh, they're going to have a few more things to say and we're gonna we're gonna dig into that uh, right. a little bit more um in this program but but before we do that we just want to note again that as we look at job and, and we said this i think think in both the previous two programs, Dave, we know this isn't some academic exercise. This, yeah. this is real life. Everybody who's ever read Job, studied Job, anybody listening to these programs, a lot of us know Job's pain, lament, and disorientation from the inside, right? Yeah. We, we too suffer. Absolutely. And, you know, one of the things we've pointed out, too, there are elements in the story that we probably shouldn't push literally. So there's a scene where Satan strolls into heaven and comes up to God, and they kind of have this wager over Job. And, you know, those details may be more like a parable than the real description of heavenly reality. But the point is, there's something there uh, that rings true to us in our lives. There's something we need to take away. And that's the fact that uh, it's more complicated than just God did this to me. There, There are other factors at play. And these are things we feel deeply 
when pain and right. suffering strike us. So that this is far from a theoretical right. story. It touches us. It also, of course, touches people we know. And so in addition to um, a lot of us being able to identify with Job, a lot of us are also able to identify with Job's friends. We are often the people who need to say something to the Job-like people uh, who we know in our families and in our lives. Yeah. And so this goes on and on, actually, what these friends try to say goes on. In the, actually, the whole middle section from about Job 4 to Job 37 is pretty almost repetitive. I mean, these friends keep going around and around the same mulberry bush over and over. Eliphaz, Bildad, Zophar, they just kind of keep doubling down on their arguments. And in the previous program, we really focused on the idea that if you suffer, you were bad because only bad people suffer. So Job, you know, Fess up. Tell God what you did wrong. But there's another thing they also say, kind of the flip side of that. They try to convince Job that it's always better to be righteous because wicked people are always miserable. Hmm. Yeah. You know, it's interesting as you were saying that, Scott, we all, I think, feel uh, this strong temptation to explain people's lives to them and explain the experiences that they're going through. If there's one thing Job ought to teach us is beware of the temptation to explain. Don't go there. And then we also, if we're Christians, we feel a strong sense to defend God that, you know, God isn't bad. God doesn't do bad things. God is always good. And surely he is. But one of the things that leads us to, as it does with the friends, is the idea that if you're wicked, if you're a sinner, you really can't be happy. You, you're never happy because God will punish you and he'll certainly do that in the end. But meanwhile, even along the way, deep down inside, you may be laughing on the outside, but you're really tormented on right. the inside. And so here's this classic statement of this. It comes up multiple times in the midsection of Job, but here's some Job 15. This is from uh, Job's friend Eliphaz. All his day, the wicked man suffers torment. The ruthless man through all the years stored up for him terrifying sounds fill his ears when all seems well marauders attack him he despairs of escaping the realm of darkness he is marked for the sword he wanders about for food like a vulture he knows the day of darkness is at hand distress and anguish fill him with terror troubles overwhelm him like a king poised to attack because he shakes his fist at god and vaunts himself against the almighty defiantly charging him with a thick strong shield yeah (laughs) So basically what he's saying is atheists are always unhappy right. uh, deep down. They, they may look happy, but they're not. Uh, they're miserable. And that's sometimes an argument we use ourselves, don't we, as Christians? Well, yeah, sometimes parents, you know, if you're a kid growing up and your parents forbid you to see a certain movie or they won't let you go to a certain party because there's afraid, they're afraid there's going to be some drinking going on. Or, and sometimes kids are unhappy with that. And so why can't I go? They, my friends all have fun. And sometimes parents will also say, well, they might seem like they're having fun, but they're really not. Yeah. And you as a kid usually want to say, yeah, it really does seem like they're having fun. In fact, I think they are. Uh, and so the friends here are trying to say, you can be wicked if you want, but it's nothing but misery. You don't even have enough to eat most days. And that just doesn't square with what usually comes in through your eyeballs if you look at real life. And Job slaps them right down, too. He says, no, it is. <laughs> no, no, they're not. That's not true. Listen, here, here's another passage from Job 21. Why do the wicked live on, growing old and increasing in power? They see their children established around them, their offspring before their eyes. Their homes are safe and free from fear. The rod of God is not on them. 
Their bulls never fail to breed, their cows calve and do not miscarry. They send forth their children as a flock, their little ones dance about. They sing to the music of timbrel and lyre, they make merry to the sound of the pipe. They spend their years in prosperity and go down to the grave in peace. And, and that's true, too, Job yep. says. You know, look at the world. Yep. Wake up and smell the coffee, Job is saying. Uh, I can give you a list as long as my scabby arm of all the really rotten scoundrels in this world you are doing just well. It reminded me of the original Godfather movie where this violent gangster named Don Corleone who spent his life building an empire on murder and ordering murder, and he dies peaceably, playing with his grandkids in the midst of his uh, beautiful tomato vines in his garden. He dies old and full of years, and he was a wicked man. And Job says, that happens all the time, my friends. Don't tell me the wicked never prosper. They do. Yeah. And uh, again, I think we need to face reality here. Uh, The world isn't as neatly arranged as maybe sometimes our theological arguments would suggest. And every time we see another example of uh, maybe a celebrity suicide or something like that, we tend to say as believers, see, you know, they're miserable all the time. They're always, and the truth is most unbelievers aren't miserable. Most of them, many of them live happily, you know, during their course in the world. They're not afraid of death. They, They just think it's the natural end. And uh, kind of that's how they go about their business. So Job says to his friends, finally, he kind of puts it to him, how can you console me with your nonsense? Nothing is left of your answers but falsehood. That's Job 21:34. So there it is. And actually, um, uh, eventually, the three main friends fall silent. And as we'll see in just a moment, starting in chapter 32, a fourth person who has shown up, Elihu, he has some things to say, and we'll ponder what he contributes to the conversation in just a moment. Meet ReframeMedia.com, a web resource to help you in your Christian life. I want my children to be entertained, but also grow in their Christian faith. It's time for Kids Corner. Hi, Liz. Where can I get a daily spiritual shot in the arm? This is Today, a daily devotional to refresh, refocus, renew. And there's more. Think Christian, Church Juice, Family Fire, resources for every age to help you grow and build your faith. Explore and visit ReframeMedia.com today. You're listening to Groundwork, where we're digging into Scripture to lay the foundation for our lives. I'm Dave Bast. And I'm Scott Jose. And uh, Dave, we've had now about 28 chapters uh, in this book of Job, uh, where there are arguments going on with uh, with Job and his three friends, uh, and that's uh, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And so basically from Job uh, 4 through uh, 32, it's those friends. And But now in chapter 32, we read this. So these three men stopped answering Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. But Elihu, son of Barakal the Buzite of the family of Ram, became very angry with Job for justifying himself rather than God. He was also angry at the three friends because they had found no way to refute Job and yet had condemned him. Now Elihu had waited before speaking to Job because they were older than he. But when he saw that the three men had nothing more to say, his anger was aroused. Right. So all of a sudden, this fourth guy shows up, and apparently he's been there all along. We talk about the three friends of Job, and they're the ones who do most of the talking. But there's this young guy, Elihu, as well, and he's been sitting respectfully in the background. But when he gets to this point, Elihu suddenly rises up in sort of righteous indignation and says, 
uh, it's kind of like the first three guys in the batting order have all struck out. Right, yeah. And now it's his turn in the next inning to come up to bat, and he's going to show him how to handle this pitcher, Job, you know, with his fastball yep. and his curveball answers. Uh, and so Elihu launches in, so listen to me, you men of understanding. This is a, more from Job 34. Far be it from God to do evil, from the Almighty to do wrong. He repays everyone for what they have done. He brings on them what their conduct deserves. It is unthinkable that God would do wrong, that the Almighty would pervert justice. Who appointed him over the earth? Who put him in charge of the whole world? If it were his intention and he withdrew his spirit and breath, all humanity would perish together and mankind would return to the dust. So uh, this is all unthinkable, Elihu claims. And truth is, what you just read there, Dave, I mean, he, he is saying some right things, and it actually has a little bit of preview of what God himself is going to say, starting in Job 38, which we'll look at in the final program of this series. Uh, God is God, and God doesn't do wrong. And Job never said God did wrong. Job just wants to know what's going on. Uh, Job thinks God doesn't do wrong either, but Job is suffering, and apparently unjustly, and so Job just wants to figure it all out. But basically, what Elihu, along with the other friends, what Elihu doesn't notice is that he isn't learning from God how justice may or may not go in the world. Elihu is imposing his own theology, his own structure onto God. And again, as we've said in previous programs, the setup of the book of Job tells us readers there was more going on behind the scenes here than Job or any of his friends even know. But they don't seem to care about that. They've got their theology. They've got their orthodoxy. The world has to work this way. So it's going to work this way, even if it contradicts common sense and what you can see with your own eyes. Yeah, exactly. We said in an earlier program that most everything that Job's friends say to him is theologically correct. Yeah. It's orthodox. It's the way you wish the world would be. It, well, and it can be, in theory, it can be echoed in other parts of the scripture. Right. Uh, yeah, God is righteous. Absolutely. But the problem is they've got this sense of righteousness, uh, these friends of Job, and they're so firmly convinced of their orthodox truth that they begin to actually go after Job when he doesn't agree with them. Yeah, well, uh, and when he tries to say, wait a minute, yeah. I, what's happening to me isn't right. All right. Well, and here, here's more from Elihu in Job 34. Job speaks without knowledge. His words lack insight. Oh, that Job might be tested to the utmost for answering like a wicked man. To his sin, he adds rebellion. Scornfully, he claps his hands among us and multiplies his words against God. And so... Wow, Elihu, you're, you're just beating up on Job pretty good. I mean, this is like visiting a person dying of cancer in the hospital, and before you leave the room, you slug him in the jaw a couple times. Nice guy. Job is down, and Elihu is kicking him. Yeah. And that's just terrible. And, you know, I think, Dave, what it gets at, and we all, I think, struggle with this temptation when we're trying to help, uh, when we're trying to find something to say to somebody who's hurting or asking hard questions, A, we end up saying more than we know. Sometimes we try to say more than we could possibly know. The other thing is we fall into the, we, we give in to the temptation that it's more important that I be right than kind. Mm. Uh, I need to be correct. And, and if that hurts your feelings, too bad. But it's more important to be orthodox than, than kind. Yeah. And that's what we see going on here. And that's a terrible sin to fall into because we do end up kicking people when they're down. Absolutely. Well, you know, it makes me think of the, the famous phrase uh, of the Apostle Paul. It comes in the book of Ephesians, speak the truth in love. Mm. And uh, 
it seems like a lot of people just hear the first part of that, and there's a certain mindset that often goes along with orthodoxy, with right teaching, uh, with right doctrine, that wants to speak that truth. But the, the love part, I mean, you're dealing with another human being. And with an individual, we tend to lump things into groups, you know, and we tend to generalize. And that's another thing I think that strikes me about the speeches of these friends. They're all generalizations. Right. They're all generalizations. But they're looking at a person, an individual, Job, and his case is his case. His story is unique. It doesn't fit into their generalizations, but they won't give up yeah. their, their, their big picture thinking and actually see the, the suffering brother in front of yeah. them and speak in love to him. And I think it's also instructive to notice how they argue. Job is looking at his life and he's starting with himself and trying to work his way back to an understanding God. The friends aren't really looking at Job. They're starting with God and how they're pretty sure everything has to work. And then they work backwards from there down to Job. And by the time they get to Job, they aren't even seeing him anymore. Yeah. It's just a matter of him fitting inside the box they have constructed that has to contain God, Job, and answers to all questions. So Job is starting from human misery and saying, how does this square with God? The friends are starting with God yeah, saying, yeah, right. we're going to square you with him. Right. And we'll explain your misery to you. So... I wonder though, and here's the question for all of us, what about us? We've talked about when we suffer, but what about when we try to comfort or encourage? Are we prone to make the same kinds of mistakes that the friends are? And that's what we want to think about next. We're glad you've joined our Groundwork Conversation. If you're enjoying today's discussion and want to download or listen again, you can find the audio podcast and transcript for this episode on our website, groundworkonline.com. Want to dig deeper? You can also find episode guides and blogs available to supplement your study. Curious about another episode or series we've mentioned? Search our episode library to find hundreds of conversations about God's Word and what it means for God's people today. Add your voice to our Groundwork conversation by visiting groundworkonline.com. And thank you. Support from listeners like you makes Groundwork possible. I'm Scott Jose, along with Dave Bast, and you're listening to Groundwork and this uh, middle program, uh, third program in a series of five on the book of Job. And in this program and the previous one, Dave, we've been looking at the arguments of Job's uh, friends, three friends, primarily throughout most of the middle part of Job, but now a fourth person, Elihu, we've been thinking about on this program. And we've noted that their desire to be correct outpaced somewhere along the line their desire to be loving. They didn't come to Job to kick him while he's down, but they ended up kicking him while he was down because their arguments weren't holding water with Job's real on-the-ground situation, and that frustrated them. Sometimes you hear the the phrase, you know, people are more important than things. And and you hear that sometimes when, you know, maybe somebody breaks grandma's favorite china plate and she just comes down on the family like a ton of bricks, like that plate meant more than the feelings of her family. People are more important than things. And here in Job, we could say people are more important than your need to be correct all the time. Mm. And, you know, we're not suggesting by any stretch of the imagination that truth doesn't matter or that orthodoxy isn't important. We're both pretty orthodox people. I mean, we yep. believe we believe in the importance of doctrine and uh, of doctrinal standards and church catechisms and, and the authority of the Bible. The Bible is true. It's God's word. Uh, so 
that is granted. We, we agree with all that. We take that and try to live it in our lives. But what we're also saying is that people are important, and sometimes we can misapply the truth. I think we said this in an earlier program in this series. They were saying the right things, but at the wrong time and in the right. wrong way yep. to the wrong person. And as a result, all their true statements ended up being false. Yeah. And you know, another thing that happens, and I think we've all observed this in other people, Dave, you and I have seen it as pastors. We've probably been guilty of it ourselves. And that is that, you know, when you really are committed to the truth, and when you do believe as we do believe that there is truth, we're not postmodern relativists, right. loosey goosey, you know, what's true for you, it doesn't have to be true for me, uh, everybody has their own facts. No, we don't, we don't believe that as Christians. So we want to be true, we want to be correct, we want to defend the truth, but unfortunately sometimes that leads us to want to convey great confidence and sort of an armor-plated truth that we, we possess, but often right underneath all that confidence is a lot of fear. And as the Apostle John wrote in one of his letters in the New Testament, perfect love casts out fear, but the, the obverse of that is where there is a lot of fear, love can love often gets get cast out. out. Yeah. yeah, right. So people are sometimes uptight, and Christians can be uptight in their eagerness to defend the truth. And, you know, this also calls for a little humility. Mm. Um, we don't know <laughs> what's going on in another person's life let alone how God may choose to deal with that person and what the meaning of the things that they experience might be. One of the things that always kind of gets my goat is when some preacher stands up and generalizes about a whole country, you know, like America or Canada and says, well, such and such a disaster happened because God is, is judging, you know, the nation for right. this and that particular sin. And I always want to say, how do you know? You know, you are you are privy to the workings of the Almighty's mind. Uh, we don't know. <laughs> we can't draw these direct conclusions between uh, God's justice or God's holiness or God's righteousness or God's mercy, you know, right. and things that happen. And, you know, don't you wonder, Dave, uh, how things would have gone differently in the book of Job if the four friends or any one of them or all four of them had been willing to say, all right, we could be wrong here. Let's admit in humility, we could be wrong. We're not saying we are, but we could be. And on that possibility, let's have a dialogue, Job. And indeed, let's do what you want to do. Let's open our eyes, look at the facts and probe this because the Holy Spirit might be leading us to some new insight. We could be wrong. That's a very hard thing to say if underneath your desire to be confident is fear. Yeah. You just reminded me of a, of a line from Oliver Cromwell, uh, the English statesman, who once cried out uh, to a group of his opponents, I appeal to you by the mercies of Christ, consider that ye might be mistaken. Right, yeah. Uh, could you possibly consider that I might be mistaken in this? So I'm, I'm going to be a little humble in what I assert. Right, and we'll just review uh, briefly something we observed in the previous program, program two in this series, Dave, and that is that in the Bible, very often when people try to connect the dots, and say this thing, what you were just saying, you know, preachers, this bad thing happened because Canada has sinned. The whole nation has sinned. Therefore, when people do that in the Bible, they're almost always wrong. And we, we, we looked at the man born blind right. in John 9. Hey, here's a guy in a bad situation. Jesus, uh, who sinned? He, him or his folks? Uh, and Jesus says, neither. Uh, that's not what's going on here. Mm -hmm. Life doesn't work that way. A, a tower in Siloam had fallen on some people and killed a bunch of them. It was a recent event. And, and Jesus said, do you think the people that got killed are any more sinful than the people who 
escaped with their lives? No, it, it doesn't work that way. So opening our minds to the possibilities that we don't know everything. In fact, a friend of mine, a colleague of mine at Calvin Seminary, she had her synodical interview for her job. And one of the questions was very short, and her answer was just as short. The questioner said, what is the basic message of the book of Job? And without missing a beat, she said, God's God and you're not. Yeah, I'm not either. Right, absolutely. So here's the point. Move toward the pain, as we said. Go when someone is hurting. Go when they're suffering. Sit with them. Sit in silence, as Job's friends did at first. Be a presence there. Be the presence of Christ. And be very hesitant to give answers or suggest reasons. But you can embody the love and grace of the Lord Jesus simply by your presence there with them. Well, thanks for listening and digging deeply into Scripture with Groundwork. We're your hosts, Scott Jose and Dave Bast, and we hope you'll join us again next time as we listen to some more of Job's laments in chapters 13 to 21, but also find out what he declares is the source of his continued hope at a time when all seemed lost. Connect with us at groundworkonline.com to share what Groundwork means to you, or tell us what you'd like to hear discussed next on Groundwork. Groundwork is a listener-supported program produced by Reframe Media in partnership with Words of Hope. Our recording engineer is Dodd Morris, and our post-production supervisor is John Reeder. Our studio relations manager is Christy Prinz. Our content and managing producer is Courtney Jacob, and our executive producer is Stephen Coster. 